Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. <clears throat> it's very humbling after spending 12 years on uh, terrestrial radio and extraterrestrial radio now as a podcast uh, to explore different regional pockets of music that existed at one time in this country that created regional music. And, you know, you had Chicago and you had Detroit and you had Nashville and Memphis and Muscle Shoals. New York, Los Angeles, and um, I've chronicled most of the studio sharks that, a lot of them, that came out of those uh, areas, uh, and uh, Phil Upchurch from Chicago, and, you know, Chuck Rainey and Jim Keltner on the West Coast, and Purdy and Gad, and Chris Parker on the East Coast, and David Hood, and Steve Cropper, and now the opportunity has presented itself um, to connect with another regional scene that never gets any publicity in my mind, like, and doesn't get the love that the other studios uh, got. But uh, my next guest is one of the cats, a great drummer, but also was a profound producer in this regional hotbed of Miami. And he was on the bandstand, arguably, arguably during the, the greatest time in music history this country's ever seen. And uh, Joey Galdo, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hello, Jake. That was a great introduction. I'm really impressed by the fact that you've you've given the uh, the the awareness of all the rich pockets of music throughout our country. You know, everywhere. I mean, everywhere you go, there's a scene, there's a an energy about the place, whether it's New Orleans or Atlanta or, like you say, in you know Memphis, Nashville. The, the list goes on and on. Um, I will say this, I'm not sure what your age is, but my generation, uh, I think, was born at the sweetest spot of any generation, any generation ever. We had, I mean, great music. We had rock and roll. We had free love. We had so much going on. We had the advent of stereo, FM radio. Uh, there was a point in the 70s where, like, Jimi Hendrix had nothing to do with Santana, who had nothing to do with The Who, who had nothing to do with The Beatles, who had nothing to do with Stevie Wonder. You know what I'm saying? They're all the scenes where they're slaying the family stone, arguably the hippest band that ever was. Uh, and yep. I was, I'm so, so grateful to have been part of that. Saying that, and at 72 years old, I pretty much strictly only listen to new music because I just love listening to what up and coming what youth is up to today and and you know i get very hyped when i hear stuff that's timeless yet uh fresh at the same time so but at the same time i kind of feel bad for the today's uh musicians because in our day you, you i'm sure you remember this we had nightclubs everywhere like 7-eleven so and every club had at least one or two bands so we played literally six nights a week five sets a night and then we'd go to the club because back then you just didn't play a club for a night. You could play two weeks, you know, so our gear was set up and we'd come in, say, one in the afternoon, practice till, say, seven, go home, freshen up and go hit the, the bandstand around 10 at night and work till three, four in the morning. Uh, and I personally, that's one of my favorite parts of my life. Joey, it's great to connect with you. Uh, yeah, I'm 45 years old. I uh, I was born in 78. Um, this is a, a my, I found my purpose in life as somebody who, as a journalist, can go and uh, do meaningful transmissions with people uh, to carry it on to my daughters and future generations. 
So, I mean, I've woodshedded a long time. They were going to have a great time. I just, I wanted to ask you about if, was Steve Alamo a mentor to you? Yes. Um, uh, great. By the way, what you're doing is very noble. And Thank I'm you, sure brother. Very, very, very fun to do as well. It keeps you very enthusiastic and alert and, and uh, exactly. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Steve Alamo, Steve Alamo's, um, function there from my perspective was this guy that was almost like a drill sergeant in a way that it wasn't easy to please he 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 would never say man that's incredible you're knocking out of the park this blah 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 but he was always there and very encouraging in in many ways um if he believed in the rhythm section the artist the energy of whatever the mission was he let you know um, and he was a great and incredible vocal coach. I, I remember seeing him work with the likes of Betty Wright. I mean, Betty Wright doesn't need uh. any coaching, believe me. Betty <laughs> I've worked with her on so many records, so and she, cool. she gets a right to second take latest. Usually it's the first take, and it's like, you know what? You don't need to do any more because you have just like nailed this on, on every level. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, Steve was there like, sort of, you know, giving some uh, support and some in between the lines, uh, you know, the, the the difference between good and great is the subtleties. And he would go in there and say, you know what, this is a really, you're on point here, mainly with uh, with vocalists, what I'm saying. But yeah. let's try this and imagine this and that and the other. And so he must have been, in, you know, on cloud nine, seeing all these people. TK Records was a very, very, very disorganized chaotic in a good way place. <laughs> sounds great it just sounds yeah. perfect yeah yeah so if you had a buddy that wanted to be an engineer you just invite him in and he would just <laughs> hang there and throw osmosis within 90 days you know he'd be behind the console and the console was full of you know pieces of fried chicken and the, and the headphones were always <laughs> had uh, uh you know uh afro sheen on them and uh, you oh know just, uh, this is the greatest i think i've ever heard in my life dude you're it's making a, my year dude it, it was the most incredible place. Now, you got paid, without exaggeration, $20 a song to work on this stuff. So whether you're working on Casey, Bobby Caldwell, uh, you know, Little Beaver. Lattimore. Uh, Bandy, Bandy Lattimore. You know, all these cats. Now, if the artist really got enamored with you, like I worked on on uh, Bobby Caldwell's um, What You Will Do For Love, but I just didn't play drums. I also arranged the track, the rhythm section and all that. So he started looking at me almost like as a muse. And so he started, you know, having me come in for all his stuff. And he asked uh, the label to pay me $40 a song. <laughs> but I can't complain about that because it was like going to school on so many levels. And then on Thursday, you'd show up and there was a nice lady at the front desk. I think her name was Glenn. And she'd <laughs> give you a check, 500, 700, however many songs you had played on. Somebody was keeping records. And then you'd go to a liquor store, literally within two blocks of the spot called M&M Liquors. And you'd go cash your check. Oh, with this is the, unbelievable. With all the construction. Joey Galdo, man. Oh, my God. It was the coolest. It was well, amazing. I want to go, go back. But before you got into the studio scene, can you talk about, you know, there were a lot of uh, backing up singer gigs. But I have a feeling that you were, like, you were, 
you were probably on the bandstand in 68, 69. Uh, were you, were you yeah. playing with the black? Who were the, 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 the generation of musicians before the Joey Galdos and the, and, and all those, and the snake pit, I think that you guys referred to. Well, the generation right before me, I wasn't so aware of it because by that point, I'm only in junior high. Okay, so you're in junior high. I'm like, but I have to believe that you might have wound up on the bandstand with, like, you were in over your in in over your your skis a little bit, but it was good. A hundred percent. And I was still in high school and and working all night at the at these clubs, like I'm saying, playing five sets a night and and six nights a week and. And, uh, you know, I'm having a great time and, and I'm and I am working with cats that are 40 years old that look to me like old men. You know what I'm Absolutely. saying? I'm, I'm like in my teens and I'm looking Absolutely. at these guys and they sing so wonderful. And and they just get to sing, you know, they're trying to turn me on to, to white crosses, which is like a, a speed so I can, you know, they can they they need it to get it up. I'm fine at, at my age. But it was just a, a different vibe of how focused they were, how. Um, you know, they, this was a whole new thing, man. This rock and roll thing, this R and B thing. The Miami being situated where it was was very unique because it's like the capital of the Caribbean. So there, totally. there, there was this hot weather element to the music, which was really cool because with all the Cubans there, uh, the Bahamians, uh, you know, the Caribbean, you now had a a, a kind of melee of of stuff that was very R&B on the bottom and on the rhythm and then very kind of like Caribbean and, and all that as far as some of the percussion as well and, and some of the melody and, and vocal uh, timbre of some of the singers. So it was really, really great. Now, I'm in high school and I'm, in, I'm on the bandstand, like you're saying. I'm playing, whether it's a strip joint, whether it's a, a regular nightclub. This is fantastic. So you were, well, I just want to be clear, the 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 strippers would be calling out Duke Ellington tunes. I mean, Sly Sly wasn't on the scene yet. This is unbelievable. But you had yeah. to hit their you had to hit their moves though. The the strippers were 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 playing to Sam and Dave, right? Uh, to uh, you know, Little Richard to uh, you know some rock. What about rock like stuff. what about like Hank Ballard and the Midnighters? Was that ever played? That, yeah, that was that was around. Uh, so was James Scott, uh, Cochran. Wayne Cochran was around. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, Wayne Cochran, who had uh, those are such play. hip dance tunes. I mean, to dance had the strippers to dance to, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, well, um, if you know this or not, uh, Jaco Pastorius worked with Wayne Cochran for a moment. Absolutely, he did. This is what I want to ask you. So, first, couple two questions here. You, who were some of these? Uh, maybe a, a couple of the singers that you backed up when you were in high school. And also did you, what, what was so invigorating about the time period that you grew up and you, you listed a bunch of this stuff, but, but basically there was no book. There were no books. There was no Academy. Like you played the groove. It didn't matter if you were keeping time on the hi hat or the ride cymbal or the bass drum, if it felt good, you went with it. And I'm curious if you could talk as a drummer, about backing up some of these early soul singers in a relatively still acoustic setting, how you kept time on all different parts of the kit. Um, man, you know what? I, I started in, in music when I was in junior high school. So I learned all my rudiments. I learned how to read and all that stuff. But I never thought I was all that good. I always thought I was mediocre on my best day. 
And what would get me through that that insecurity was my imagination. Hmm. So yes, you're right. Sometimes I would maybe uh, put my my stick away, one of them, and then I take a timpani mallet and maybe take my snares off and and I would just play a rhythm that I would know would make a Timmy Thomas, for example, exactly. tail wag, uh, or and later on whether it was Stephen Stills or Prince or Alba or whoever I ended up. You know, I worked with a lot of people in, in my studio days later on, but it was that. And I was also ridiculously a record buying junkie because amazingly, <laughs> and I, I got to give my mom props. She passed away back in 1970, but I would come home from school, close all the windows, turn the stereo up. This is before headphones and just blast the house all day long playing to her <laughs> public you know, Herb Albertino won a brass, the Beatles, wow, wow. the Stones, whatever it was, until it was time for dinner. I was just like so in it that you geeked uh, up I, about it. I love it. Yeah, I'm a total. That's the way I am about everything. Yeah, totally. Uh, and then, then later on, it would, you know, like I remember this: a Cuban guy, probably very, very blue collar, uh, in the Latin uh, culture, when when the daughter becomes uh, turns fifteen, they have the quince. And that's a big deal. It's like, it's like kind of kind of like a sweet 16. Sure. But you do what you can. It's like a debutante kind of a vibe. And before that, you know, if I needed a pair of sticks or a tambourine or whatever, my old man said, hey, man, here's a lawnmower. You go around the hood and, and mow some lawns. Back in that day, it was $354 to mow somebody's yard. And that would make me enough money to, you know, buy a pair of sticks or whatever. Once we did this one party, I don't know how I heard about it, but there was this kinsey at this dude's house in Hialeah. It was like, hey, man, I got this three band and we must have sounded terrible. It was a, imagine this, a silver tone guitar, the sear silver tone guitar in a silver tone case. It had two inputs. So we had a mic in one, the guitar in another drums and another guitar it's not even a bass player and we were doing again sam and dave and 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 stuff from the 60s and man we made five bucks a piece to play you know be like the center of attraction play our instruments and then that's the last last time I, I ever did a straight gig was mo lawns from that point on it was like okay i i know what i got to do here and this is going to be my life and it was a wonderful moment which i had uh, you know reproduced Many times in my lifetime, I've been very, very, very. Well, I, I mean, because this is so important. I mean, I, I just have to ask you this. I've spent so much time, you know, I've interviewed Ayerto and Candido, Bill Summers, Ray Mantilla, all the great percussionists. And I, I, I wanted to ask Ayrton. you. I worked, that? I worked with Ayerto. I mean, yeah, but I mean, we're going to, we're going to, this is only set one. We're, we're just going to have a ball. But I just, you know, the thing is, did you, like, those cats, Bill Summers told me about going to Harlem at a certain point in the late 60s and seeing uh, Pablo Landrum and Ola Tunji playing spiritual drums. And that was more from like diaspora from the African root. But can from like the Latin root, was there spiritual drumming that you would check out? To me, the only thing that's healing for me at 45 is original spiritual music with preferably polyrhythmic rhythm rhythm is healing and i just wonder about like outside of the gigs were there cats that would get together and play spiritual shamanistic kind of latin drums with tradition well the shit was so deep sometimes i couldn't find a one uh, <laughs> yes it, you, 
<laughs> you go to you go to this guy's house, you know, in the middle of the the Latin hood, and and uh, there was a deity there, and there was a this and a that and the other, and the only reason why I got in there only because I, I met a, a wonderful uh, a man had come from Cuba who could barely make ends meet. He got a job as a baker's assistant on the beach. And I got turned on to him and he started coming over. This is later on now uh, to the studio and I would feed him and I would get him on whatever records I could. And, you know, just sort of a thing where I'm not doing you a favor. You're not doing me one. This is a, a synergetic or no symbiotic relationship where I can't believe you're as good as you are. You're as deep as you are. And I actually did uh, a couple of records where I put him and his posse in there because, you know, it just get added credibility to the whole thing. What's but his cast name? Florencio Baro. And, and, and Florencio yeah. passed away uh, unbeknownst to anybody. He, he, again, he was a baker and he worked on uh, probably not many records, if any. And he would, uh, you know, work around town here and there, but it was mostly deep, deep, deep in places that I... I was not aware of, and unfortunately, and I only got uh, that door open to me only because this man saw that I was nothing but a huge fan, not only of his energy and his soul, but the music and, and uh, you know, deep. The guy was uh, ridiculously... Um, when you, you say, know, like for the younger cats, when you say deep, yeah, this is what I'm talking about is, is can you talk about... A, a memory of you, or at least something in the uh, in retrospect, where you had descarga, spiritual healing, splitting open of the brain through some of the this deepness. Uh, okay, so there are times when you you're floating. You know, you you yeah. you catch yourself. You're floating. As soon as you know, then you fall down again. But... <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right, dude. Yeah, yeah. But, but that happened playing. Most anything, if I call that a pocket, a groove, where suddenly you know, you, if you're if you're standing outside the building, the building's moving like a a, a blob of jello through the groove. You know, it, it could be something very intense, or you know, like a fusion type of groove, or it could be just one and three in the bass drum, two and four in the snare, eighth notes on a hi hat. When you hear, um, oh my God, uh, Buddy Miles play. Uh, with Jimi Hendrix on Still Dreaming, Still uh, Raining, the groove on that, I mean, he's laying it down so back. And so those are the moments for me that that I felt like that descarga, that, that moment of, oh my God, I'm so happy to be alive. And <laughs> Dude, Joey Galdo, man. I want to read this to you right now. This is from my interview with Will Lee. He said, um, I was in eight bands. One would be playing jazz standards at lunch. Another would be top 40 music, six, set, six sets a night, six nights a week. Another band I left behind was called Gold Rush, which was a rock fusion horn band with vocals. One of the guys in that band was Joe Galdo, who put Miami Sound Machine on the map with his incredible production and arranging of their materials. Um, so Very sweet of him. Well... First of all, are there tapes of Gold Rush? You know what? I didn't... <laughs> wait, a minute, wait a minute, because yep. the answer is Will Will's brother Rob Lee. He used to record us at one point years ago, and it's somewhere in my house. I, I hope I haven't lost it. He made a CD 
Yo, Joey, let's make a project of finding that. I just want you to talk about. Um. Well, well let's be very. I want. I want to be like. This is really important because I mean I have shedded Everett Barksdale and Ed Shaughnessy were on the scene before Bernard and and Chuck and Steve Gadd and Richard T. And then like Earl Palmer and, you know, James Burton, Glenn Campbell, they were on the scene before the next generation of those cats, like, you know, Teen Parks and all those guys. What I want to get at is like, who were though that Miami sound machine? Who were those cats? Because I don't know why. Maybe it's because you were cashing checks at uh, Eminem. But you guys get no love down there, and some of the hottest music ever was made down there. Yeah, it's a weird thing. The people that were in charge of the recording companies, record studios, the people with the dough, the people who could put your record on the radio, they're pretty much exploitive. I mean, I think the only guy I've ever worked with (laughs) my entire life is Chris Blackwell, who was the only guy who was sympathetic to the creative process. Wow. He nurtured wow. you instead of exploiting wow. you. Where everybody else is like, hey, dude, you're lucky to be here. Shut your mouth. If you don't like it, there is a door. Jeez, man, and, that's so humbling to hear, man. But I know it's true, but man, I tell my daughter that too. And I'm just like, that's the real world. And that sucks. Yeah, yeah. So so I want to go. So, so basically what you're saying is they kept the money and didn't promote the music. Dude, you know, $20 a song, that, that's not promoting the musicianship or, no. or, or any of that. Um, and some of these songs were like, you know, really big hits, whether you go to Pakistan or you go to Paris. Or you go Dude, to they were, they're you know. international hits. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, uh, it's it's a weird thing. I, I, I'm not sure if you re- read the book uh, Hitman. I read it many decades ago. So I've, I've really I haven't read it, no. It. It's really good. It's a really good book. Uh, the The underline is how Reagan sold out the music industry uh, by giving it to the gangsters. And and there's a whole chapter on Henry Stone and uh, what he used to do to his folks. Uh, for example, have you ever heard of, um, oh my God, um, Clarence Reed? I, I, I absolutely, dude, I, I'm all, yes, yes, all right. yes. So Clarence Reed was a guy who, who loved to gamble. And the racetrack was literally a mile from the studio. And so what Henry would do, would, he would lease a car, he'd give it to, to Clarence, and he'd oh give gosh. him $100 here and a couple hundred dollars there. And Clarence was very happy to ride around in the caddy and, and go to the track. Uh, now talk about giving him his due royalty, his publishing, any of that, not even close. I so, want to be very, I want to stop you right there. Okay, because this is really important. The other thing that that fell short with the mob down there is that they didn't care about educating the musicians about getting publishing. They just left them out for the cold. Of course, we didn't know jack about it, man. I mean, listen, I I signed my first record contract with TK Records on a trunk of a car at 2, 3, 4 in the morning. (laughs) And it was like, yeah, you're going to put my record on the radio? Where do I sign? You know what I'm saying? You're not reading about publishing. You're not reading about anything. You only listen, Jake, you only find out when you when you sign a bad deal, only if the record becomes huge. Right. Totally. Most records never even see the light of day. So as a kid is like, I don't give a shit. If I sign here, you you mean my record is going to be on the radio? Yeah. All right. Where do we go? 
So, you know, even the, the, the musicians union in Miami was worthless. You know, if you had a dispute with a club owner, if you, they never guided you. There was one guy who I owe so much to so many people, but one of them, one guy's name is Mike Lewis. He's a great, great horn arranger. Actually, he did the horns on What You Wouldn't Do For Love. Dude, but, I'm, I'm looking here. He also arranged strings on Lattimore albums. On, on everybody's stuff. Oh, but, my God. Know, Talk about Mike Lewis, please. Yeah, Mike Lewis is the greatest. He's he's a guy who cared for his musicians, and if he was involved in the session, you were going union scale. You're you're going through the union. He would tell me. He would tell the cats in the union what the what the the gospel was, how you needed to treat the people who got you know leaders and who got uh, this and that and the other. Always on the side of the musician. And uh, so, you know, Mike worked there when it was like, they thought this record was going to, might be a hit and, and was worth paying the real money. Unfortunately, I only did that with Mike outside of TK because of TK, I was already on the rhythm section, done. Mike would come in days, weeks later, whenever it was, and do his thing on top of it. But any, any gig that Mike put me in on from the beginning you know, it'd be great. You'd walk in, the string section was here, the woodwork uh, was here, the brass was uh, here. I was in my gobo back there. We'd read the chart. Uh, invariably, there was a wrong note uh, in the transcription. The guy would run out, fix it. Okay, that's an E flat, not an E. Then we'd take it again and record it. And so Union Scale was three songs in three hours. And so you'd start at 10, you work till one, take an hour break for lunch, come back at two to five, and you'd have six songs done in a day. All those things, Mike. That was Mike Lewis, and Mike Lewis was always about this. Will be legit. There will be a leader. There will be a, you know, if you're doubling from sax to flute or whatever, you are going to get that double. All those things. But everybody else, man. Everybody else said, "Hey, dude, I got a hundred bucks, and you do it." Hey, dude, I got this. I got that. And so, yeah, you're working night and day. But uh, I wasn't in the league. The my favorite guys in the world, which was Bernard Purdy, as you were said earlier, and Chuck Rainey and Richard T. Those guys were like God. Later on, Will came up and stood right up with those guys and played his balls off. Oh Steve my Dad, God! Of course, man. you know oh, I always like the East Coast better than the West Coast. I got to tell you. No, nah, man. I, I did. This is mind blowing. <clears throat> I got to be honest, though. Okay. I mean, first of all. John Hendricks, the great singer Lam with Lambert Hendricks and Ross. I mean, he said yeah. basically to me, without the Sicilians or the mob, there'd be no jazz in America. So that, mm -hmm. I mean, they always own clubs before Reagan. Now, I, I, I ask a couple questions like, <clears throat> you know. Reagan was more the recording industry than the clubs. Reagan was once, once uh, you know, check out that, that book because you're going to learn. I will. No, no, no. What I'm saying is why. Why wouldn't you like? There was you're telling me Mike this this cat Mike brother Lewis was the only cat that like to to me like you should, all the musicians in New York were going to the union to pick up their checks whether it was a jingle suds and duds this that and the other so it sounds to me like there was and that was in the sixties I mean Reagan was an actor at that time so what yeah, I'm saying yeah. is like was there ever a reasonable studio scene because in, in LA too, I mean, they had a fight. I mean, Emil Richards, my dear, rest in peace, my dear uncle. I mean, he, the man advocated with Shelly Mann that if you played tablas and you also played timbales, then you deserve double scale because it's two different oh. instruments. Okay. Oh, I'm just saying like, was there ever a, was there ever 
a honeymoon period in the studio scene in Miami. It was always just so shady. Yeah, well, you said Snake Pit. I never heard that one before, but that's what it was. That was Will Lee. Yeah, dude, Snake. I want to. Can we mark? Can we trademark that, dude? <laughs> if, if, if you like, when it was it, when it was Chitlin homegrown, mm. uh, it was dog eat dog. Not musician to musician, but now once we get to the next level, when you're doing you know international acts, uh, you know whether it was I don't care. I mean, my discographies. It's, you know, it's there so you can see it. Profound, then, yeah. Then, then you get, you know, record companies taking care of you and, and uh, you know, you, you learn that rope. The producers take care of all that stuff. But I'm talking about the, the, the boots on the ground, early stuff, which, again, is my favorite stuff, okay? That I, I am honored if I have a number one record on the R&B charts on Billboard a lot more than if you have, you know, the same thing on the pop charts. Uh, so Absolutely. That, that's where I learned, man. I walk in and I didn't know who, if it was going to be Snoopy Dean on guitar one session. It was going to be, you know, it was just a, a wonderful melee of cats that, you know, you'd walk in there and really, literally, you half the time you didn't know who, if it's a Blowfly record, it's going to be a, a group called Miami, it's going to be, who who is it? And you just sat there and you were there all day, all night, just playing tracks. And then you'd get a call, hey, man. Three in the morning, there was a guy named Sax Carey. He used to literally wow, live wow. there. Okay, Sax Carey used to live upstairs in the, in the attic of TK Records. He had like a, <laughs> I swear to you, man. He had like Dude, a, I'm, this is, you're making two years of my life right now. Yeah, he, 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 he'd call you at two in the morning. Hey, hey, Joe, man, how about let's do a disco version of, of uh, Besame Mucho. You know, it's like, Sax, really? You want to do this? And then, you know, there it was. You, you, the place was wide open for you to go in there and do whatever it is that you wanted to do. And Sax Carey was this guy who took no, at one point he, he shot somebody in the leg at Sporty, uh, King Sporty, because King Sporty was being a, a real difficult dude and, you know, just popped one on to, to, to his leg. It was a, that's the kind of atmosphere that you had there. But it was a wide open situation. So Sax Carey would call you up at any time of the day or night, actually, when everybody was kind of gone and you'd make an album before the cleaning crew came in at, at, you know, seven in the morning. So it was so loose, but it was so right because you learned so much. Explain, uh, like, I want you to talk about something that profound that you carry to this day from a production standpoint or just like, what did you learn that was profound? You play for the song, you play, um, you hang on to that bass player, you hang on to that singer. Uh, there were moments where, again, you're just so glad to be where you are and, and given the, the opportunity you've been given and the looseness, the chaos of it. I thrived on that because that's when, you know, it's the holes in the wall that lets the light through. And I just love that yes. atmosphere. You know, if something is something is very perfect and very new and very shiny, I am a little dubious. But if you know, I've worked in studios all over the world. So I've worked in studios where they have to have a fan 
on the tape machine because if it overheats, it's going to shut down. But the people that work there are joyous. They're happy. They're they're experimental. They're they're you know they're just got this vibe of forward thinking. I love it. And and none there's no limitations. And then you go to places where every microphone is spot shiny and you know there's a, a spot for everything and and you walk through and you can tell there's a little bit of a elitist about the vibe and it's like uh you know sure if it's you want way to... too sterile man it's way yeah. too sterile you up tight no you can't do this and this ain't allowed and uh, this and that and wanking so, yeah. it dude just wankers yeah. man so this... pk was this... a total opposite <laughs> no um, i want to i want to ask you oh this is really important um yeah. because you know i've interviewed different casts like bruce barthol uh not bruce barthol uh Bruce Botnick the, produced the doors and engineer the yeah. doors. And I want you to talk about a session early on in your career where basically you were, you said you had some gobos, but when you played with, did you ever play a recording session with no baffles where basically they dropped a mic or maybe a couple of mics right left overhead and everybody hit at the same time? Well, I wish I could say I have. Uh, by the time I got into the scene, which was the early 70s, right. 60s, the first right. record I made, 1969. Wait, uh, I'm sorry, what was that record? Uh, it was a band called Brimstone. Brimstone. I had a deal with, with Atlantic Records, and it was just a one-off. I, I was just uh, out of high school, and we went to New York City. And I remember <laughs> I remember they they couldn't put us in the studio because I was a minor with no union <laughs> check this out check out check out where i'm going Go this is 1969 so they say we got to send this kid all the way back to key west there was a union guy in key west who was a crook or would you know would you, money under the table you get your union card so the, as the men were landing on the moon i'm on a bus a greyhound bus going down to the key so i could see this guy touch him off with whatever it was i couldn't remember I get the card and then back up to to New York so I could so I could get on this record. Is it fair uh, to say you just it was it was a, it was like a, a compensation kind of thing? Yes, I'll say that. I'm just gonna say I'm looking here, brimstone blowing in the wind, right. uh, 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 doing the Bob Dylan cover, and then another tune written by a guy named Brim Leal. Right, that's. Uh, who do take me through this. This is this is where the Jake the rubber meets the road for my show. You went all the way. You took a bus back down south, got yeah. your car, got whatever you got a jig card, came back, and you guys hit. Yes, that is and, and, epically and, and sick. The blowing in the wind was done in New York. The other second, which was I guess the B side or whatever, it was done at Criteria. It was my first recording session ever. Wow. Um, I wow. remember Mac Emmerman was was who was the owner of of, uh, of Criteria, who lived for a long time, and Criteria became an incredible place with multiple rooms and always ahead of it. You know, I mean, Criteria is as big of a studio as there ever was anywhere. Uh, but back then, he had a couple of uh, four track. Um, oh my God, Apex. Um, beautiful, uh, beautiful, machine. beautiful. Yeah, just uh, you know, just the little slots ah. that go on top of each other. And airplane seats was uh, was what he had in a control room for you to sit on, and you know flying by the seat of his pants early on. 
but uh, and then so, but I'm I'm going back now. Criteria, uh, criteria when it became what it became. That's like moving on up. You know what I'm saying? So I was still working at at PK every so often, but I, you know, hold I on. I want to I want to just stop you for a second here. You're, the criteria that you just described it was it was a little it was pretty scrappy for a while, but then eventually it exploded onto the scene. Very quickly, it became very, very big with multiple rooms, and mm -hmm. everybody went through there. And that's the place when you'd go there and be hired from there, we, you'd be hired by you know heavy duty people. So you'd be doing sessions for I don't know, man. I'd I'd have to have the list in front of me, but you know I don't. You name it. Uh, well, no, I mean, I mean who was who, give me give me something. I mean, it was it was it wasn't local acts. No, mostly, you know, Mink DeVille, for example, or Stephen Stills, or um, let me see, ABBA, you know, oh. people like that. And so that's that's a whole different composition. However, Jake, I love going back to Hialeah, to TK Records, and or little studios all over the hood where you might get 50 bucks. But in those little sessions, you would find the bass player of Doom, the Horn Ranger from outer space. I mean... The, the hip is shit. So the only way that you climb, if you want to use that word, is to never say no. You know, <laughs> you, you, called me, you called me up for a gig and I, there's no way I'm not going to, I'm going to say no to you. I don't give a shit what I wanted to be on the drums. I wanted to meet people, make those connections that that's how you, you know, meet people that uh, you get knowledge and, and, uh, and uh, inspiration from. All right, Joey, Joe Galdo, just blowing my mind here. How how often early on, TK Records, Henry Stone, Tone Distributors, Marlin, early on, was it everybody hitting at the same time? Or, because that's my fantasy as a 45-year-old. Although I do realize that at that time, bands like Blood, Sweat, and Tears, different situation, but they'd rent out. They'd have the studio for two weeks, bowls of cocaine everywhere. They... But the point is, they'd they'd cut the rhythm tracks. It it was it was layered, and I'm just wondering early on with all these in this warehouse section of Miami when you would show up for Fifty Bones, would you hit live or was there overdubbing? Mostly live. The first studio, where the, in my opinion, where the magic really happened at TK was a little studio upstairs, eight track. Um, that's where Betty Wright cut. Um, clean up woman, for example. Uh -huh, uh -huh. You know, you can't beat that groove. I wish I could say I played on that. I think that was Robert Ferguson. I think Robert. Uh, you so you. <laughs> I wish I could say I played on that. Yeah, so Fergie played on that, but but yeah. but that was upstairs at TK. Right, and now later on, once once uh, Casey and the Sunshine Band and those records started hitting, then Henry opened up the room downstairs. I guess he took a, a space out of his. Uh, tone uh, distributor, I'm guessing. And then he put together a, a straight ahead 24 channel MCI board with an MCI uh, 24 track tape machine, a nice live room outside. Uh, and so it, you know, it went from the magic of being upstairs to then being a recording studio because now he had a stable of artists that was probably, I'm gonna say 18 thick, maybe even more. And again, you'd come in and you didn't know if you were working on a Benny Lattimore song or a Blowfly or, a, you know, whoever it was, uh, the, the artists were there and they were hanging out and, 
And uh, I may work with one bass player on a, a couple tracks and then another one on a couple other tracks. Chocolate Perry was uh, one of my favorite bass players. That, that Dude, I, well, I want you, is that where he's, because I was like always looking at those Crosby, Stills, and Nash albums. Like, where did they find Chocolate Perry? He well, was Chocolate, down there. Chocolate Perry was a TK bass player who was a, 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 a regular there. And uh, he played, when he played, his notes were as fat as fat can be. <laughs> and he laid it down, man. He just like, this, oh, man. it was so wonderful. Oh, so, you know, I worked with him on a, on a bunch of different things. One, one, one uh, album, I think, was a band called Night Flight with a guy named Sandy Toronto. I think I played on a couple of those albums. And, and I, I made sure that Chocolate was, got on those records. Where were those? Sandy Toronto? Sandy Toronto from Chicago. Wow. Actually, Miami at first. Sandy Toronto had a band called the New McGuire Sisters with Michael. Oh, shit. Are you kidding me, dude? This is so cosmic. I just was going back and listening to my second interview with Narda Michael Walden. That was his band, man. Michael Walden was a drummer, and there's a guy named Rod Globman, I think was bass player, but don't quote me on that. Yo, man, he said that that was as cutting edge as anything that was going on at the time. And then oh, yeah. uh, Mark Ma- McLaughlin came and visited him and took him off to Mahavishnu because Billy left. Yeah, yeah. Wow, dude, the McGuire. Talk about that. So where were they? Where were they hitting at? I don't know jack about them except to know that they were there, and I know yep. that Santa Toronto was part of that. And Santa Toronto and I kind of worked around the same orbit, and then finally he got a deal with the. Uh, I forgot what label it was, but the, his band was called Night Flight. And um, I worked on both of those albums, not all the tracks. Um, I think uh, Steve Ferrone might have played on a couple tracks on those records. Uh, my dear friend, my God. And I don't know who else played on that, but I know for sure Chocolate Perry. Once they heard and saw Chocolate, it was like, yeah, you're the bass player. <laughs> uh, you know, there was a guy named Jack Waldman who played on that stuff who I didn't know at that point, but suddenly I found myself playing in Robert Palmer's band and Jack Waldman was a keyboard player in that band. What? A wonderful human being who was one of the first casualties of AIDS, unfortunately. Hmm. Um, but that, that was a connection that um, that was made, you know, later on in life. You know, but, going back to the, when you got back to New York, you played with baffles on that session when you got your union card or was that only, or did you overdub it criteria? No, no, everything was, was pretty much live. I think the only thing overdub might've been the, the vocals. I mean, I'm, I'm at that point, I'm 18 years old. I'm, I dig. No, I dig. This is where the rubber meets the road. I mean, to me, who was the cat when you were just getting your feet wet criteria before it blew up? How did they mic your drums? Man, I could not even begin to tell you. Really? Think- because, you know, like, I th- I feel like some of the leakage, maybe a right and left overhead and a, one on the bass drum, I'm just saying, like, at that time, it, you know, they used to get the, they used to get the cats in the room and then, and then mic the room based off what was needed. It wasn't yeah. mic'd in advance. And, like, I'm mm-hmm. always curious about, you got a good drum sound on a lot of your stuff, and I'm wondering about uh, and just in general what was the the sort of you know sort of i don't want to paint with a broad brush but it not every part of the drum was mic'd no it couldn't have been because there weren't that many tracks you know what i'm saying there mm-hmm. the, 
I think it was probably like you're saying overhead, maybe a snare drum uh, mic on there. Uh, perhaps the bass. Drum. I love leakage, man. I love it. You yeah, know. So do I. I mean, listen. Here's my my theory on this: is why everybody keeps sampling and everybody the, the records from back in a day. The molecules of that, that that are in our air as we speak and as we exist. When you have a keyboard player, a saxophone, guitar, piano, drums in one room, one mic, all our overtones are in those air molecules. And that's what the difference to me between film and video. Right. So when you have that microphone and you have the live people in the room and there's that natural, and by the way, back in the day, those musicians knew when to come close to the mic, when to back up. And it's funny how you can even hear an upright bass and a singer with a 20 piece band. When you hear like Louis Armstrong stuff recorded in the thirties and forties, you still hear everything. Because they knew how to they knew how to balance themselves. Absolutely. They knew how to do yeah. it, man. And, and the engineer knew their shit and the ribbon mics were like, you know, uh, it was beautiful to me. And so that's what, to me, is the difference between film and video is the fact that those air molecules with their overtones of, of everybody's instruments are, are in there within the music. Uh, so it's something that you feel it's, it's there. And, and you're right, even later, later on in my, in my life, I mean, much later, decades later, if I was going to do a drum programming gig or, or the drums were programmed, what I would do is I'd put a microphone in a room, put a speaker to play onto the, the, the live room, and all of a sudden there was a three-dimensionality to the, to the, mm. to the sound, mm. which suddenly kind of gave you a feeling that there was a pocket there. It kind of humanized the, the vibe because of that element of the you know, sound within the room picked up by that one mic. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, having that mic and it, as well, there's that eye contact, you know, if somebody doesn't do something they shouldn't have done or or something does so, that's really, really magic. There's a smile that comes to your face and there's that eye contact. And, you know, you're just like on the bandstand, which was my favorite part of my life was playing in a bar band. You never played the same song the same way once, though, ever, you know. To me, I, like, how I, did, I, I want to... you to talk about the, the especially early on. I mean, it, things got real insane, as you know, you lived through it. But early on, like, the idea that um, it was all music and, you know, I mean, you know, you would play, you would hear on the radio uh, free in freeform times, you know, uh, Beethoven. You know, uh, Sons of Champlin, Mahavishnu Orchestra, and Louis Armstrong all at the same time. Like, you know, to me, it, there wasn't this stratification of music and it wasn't yeah. all label driven. And I want I want you to talk about in your live gigs with bands, how you were able at, collectively to avoid becoming a formula trip. I see a lot of my peers and younger cats, they make a record and if they are lucky enough to road dog it they're just playing it like the record and i can i hate that shit i want people yeah. going over the edge and because otherwise you just get into a formula trip and maybe you don't even realize it maybe you don't care but i how did you avoid that okay the way that i i didn't avoid it or not avoid it all i did was if you're playing a sly and a family stone song why in the world would i want to change that what i would try to do is i would try to absorb 
that energy and and listen to the baseline, which was magic. That down the road, whether it was Earth, Wind, and Fire, Steely Dan, Power of Power, whoever it was we were playing, down the road where that helped you was when you start making your own music and arranging and all that, you have the chops of not to sound like those people, but you have the physical ability to make your stuff sound, you know, like it belongs on the radio. Like you're not making a record for your mom, you're making a record for the world. Wow. And so you learn by doing that. However, because of my Cuban background, because of where I lived there, as you said early on, there is a certain energy, a certain dirt and sweat that belongs only to you or to that place. You ate it, you drank it, you slept it. And so I could try to play reggae drums and have a great time doing it, but I ain't never going to play like Horsemouth Wallace, you know, any of those wow. guys there. They're just got, you know, or or Carlton Barrett, which to me was like Fred Astaire. There'll never be another Carlton Barrett. Uh, because Absolutely. I didn't drink it, sleep it, eat it. You know what I'm saying? So you bring to the table your background. I listened to Celia Cruz and I also listened to the Beatles. And you bring that background. And then I I used to put a, a Walkman behind me on a at a club. And on my way home, I would listen to it. Hey, man, you're rushing this. This pocket doesn't feel as good as you think. This is a little better than you thought. And I would just beat up myself and, and just, okay, let's work on that. I was always been a person that just loved to to just grind. And I was, you know, you listen to, to Bernard Purdy and you go, oh my God, this is, you know, the day that he did Rocksteady and he did that triple hi-hat thing with the bass drum, I really do believe that moment, the earth stopped spinning for like a, a mat nanosecond. The shit it's, was... Yeah, deep. absolutely. Uh, it stopped spinning for me too with Stephen yeah. Ferroni and uh, Joey yeah. Galdo too. I mean, the uh, I think, you know, part of me wants to ask you about... Um, you know, if you were at all raised with the idea of how you kept your cultural heritage intact, uh, being part Cuban, um, I mean, to me, the most powerful thing that came out of diaspora was rhythm. It was totally mistrusted by, you know, like the Europeans and the slave owners and, you know, and, and yet it, that it, what was happening down there. Uh, especially in Miami. Again, this is brand new territory. I'm more familiar with Congo Square in New Orleans. Yeah, but yeah. was your family, like, did they educate you on the history of where you came from? No, very, very little. I'll tell you, my family came. My dad fought not right along with Castro, but he fought for Castro. He believed in Castro. Huh. And my dad was educated at Columbia University in New York City. Wow. He was a member of the national swim team, and um, he, he knew English. Uh, he had a, a business called a freight forwarding from Havana to Miami. Uh, and then when Castro came into power, Castro became the complete opposite of what he said he was going to be. Wow. And he put Wyoming in jail several times, and then after the, the third time, we escaped from there. He came ahead of us. We, we, we went ended up in Venezuela for about three months living with his parents and his side of the family who had gone there early on in the 50s. He went ahead of us, got a house, got himself a job, rented a little house and bought a little car, a used car. And his, his mantra was like, you're here 
this is your new country. It's giving you an opportunity. The, you know, and he was like, I knew English within three months, almost perfectly. I was 10 years old. So my Cubanness comes from those wonderful first 10 years of my life of living that hot weather element, the ocean, the joy that is uh, the Cuban spirit, the food, all that. They couldn't take that away from me. But I you, was, I'm, I'm just be very clear. You spent the first 10 years of your life in Cuba. That's right. Beautiful. Yeah, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. incredible. Last year and a half, maybe not so good because that's when Castro went went upside down and all of a sudden the paranoia, even though I was a kid, the paranoia was so thick you could cut it with a knife. Oh, and no oh, longer shit. could your parents talk to their friends because nobody knew who was secretly working for the government ratting out on everybody. It was really, it was really a bad situation. But so I came here and I be, you know, I had a, had a freaking paper route, man, within three months. And I was like Johnny Smith. Yeah, you, right? were, assimil you were assimilating. A hundred percent. And my father and mother spoke only English to us. My dad knew that we were never going back. A lot of Cubans had this fantasy that, yeah, Fidel's only going to last six amount of time. We'll be able to go back and resume. But for some reason, my old man thought better. I'm going to say thought. I'm not. Nobody knew better, but he thought better. Well, he was obviously a bright dude. I mean, he knew what he was doing. I, so I, I mean, I like. Okay, I want to be clear though. I, I, the warehouse district, all the shadiness. When the big get the, the big cats were coming in, were you on retainer? Did the union get squared away? I mean, you're not starving to death now. You got you. I mean, things things weren't always just dealing with the mob. <laughs> Jake, uh, when I when I say the mob, it's, again, it's the, the hitman uh, book, I did. which is later. But when I say the mob, I'm talking more club owners and all that. I was always had food on the table because the most important thing to me is to make sure I could never tell my, my girlfriend, my wife, anybody that, hey, I can't pay rent this month. That, that would just freak me the hell out. So the club, the club gigs would pay you about 300 bucks a, a week, maybe 350. That was plenty enough to put up food on the table. The recording stuff at TK was another 500 plus. Uh, I was fine. And because, you know, I bought a car in 2004. I still own that car. That car doesn't even have 75,000 miles because I walk on a bike everywhere. Oh. I'm a happy dude. I'm simple. I don't need the lady. I'm latest. loving this, dude. But, you know, I'm just a simple man. Guy. I have plenty of money. I have no problem. No, you're a humble cat, man. I dig. What, what mattered to me was to, can I play anywhere near as good as Bernard? Can I move <laughs> anywhere as near as Sly in the Family Stone? Can I be as deep as, you know, Mahavishnu or the Beatles or whoever it was? I'm always looking way up above me, right? And I've always had, uh, you know, I'm just now learning what, what is called the imposter syndrome where I'm sitting there and, and Prince comes into the room and I say, okay, today's the day they're going to look around. So what the hell is this guy doing here? Right. That never happened. But I always thought, am I in this league with these people? You know, even though I did it for decades, I always had that, yeesh, you know. So my whole thing, my entire life was kind of get better, kind of get better. And by better, I'm not saying more chops, just more of that, like, thing you're talking about that descarga where you feel like you know this groove might change the world some this group uh -huh. that's right joy. you know people will will say to me yeah i i we had my our first child to this song or you know this every time i hear this music as it does to you and me it makes you smile it makes you feel like 
to me, music's the best drug on the planet. It instantly transports you to such a higher plane. I, 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 it's just every day with me, man. I'm dragging. Yeah. The minute I put something on that resonates, Harvey Mason, it's over. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was going to ask you about, um, did you get a chance to work with Little Beaver? A couple of different times. Little Beaver was... And I don't blame any black people that have any kind of, I'm, I'm going to say chip on a shoulder only because of lack of. Sure. Of a, of yeah, a no, it's fine. Yeah. I, I'm one of these cats who actually, I'm, I'm, I'm a racist in the opposite way. I think the, the, uh, the, the, um, the black race is superior on, on so many levels. Yeah, and of course. So, I mean, this is the, the conundrum in our country is just the ability yes. to just sort of like live with that and not, not resent it. I, I can't I can't believe that 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 this is going on, especially in two thousand. Wow. We're human animals. We're not human beings, dude. We're human animals. Yeah, exactly. So Little Beaver was was great to work with, but I also worked with um, Chuck Berry, for example. Right. These cats would walk into a room, take their guitar out of the case, play, put the guitar back in the case, and leave. <laughs> <laughs> dude i'm sorry dude that is the greatest story i mean that might be the greatest line my fifth book is about to be published that's the greatest line i think i've ever heard in my life that's <laughs> what the jake feinberg show is man done get it done inspire and go yeah i, I worked with a with a, a african woman named angelique Kijo, and i remember on one of the tracks i said why don't we bring in um uh Musa, Mama Musa, Mama Kusa. what's the name of that guy oh the dude uh Mano Dubango. Mano Dubango, yeah. Same shit, bro. The guy walk in, he was dressed as if Oprah Winfrey was about to come in to do a documentary on the cat. <laughs> <laughs> he, he'd take the horn out of the case, screw it in his mouthpiece, he'd do a thing, put the horn back in the case, off he's gone, right? There wasn't like no hang, none of that kind of business. It was like, I'm here to give you this magic that I own that I possess and you're going to be lucky enough to get it and you better record it because I'm only going to do this a couple of times right Absolutely. and I love that I got no problem with that stuff so I can't say same, look the prince was the same way prince I only got him to open up one time when we talked about being vegetarian because he was a pretty militant guy about that stuff and for a moment he kind of opened up the rest of the time you were a telephone or a lamp you were there to be used and that was the end of it and so some people are that. Some people are super warm and want to hang and right. the spot and they're chatty and all that kind of stuff. And other cats are like, you know, uh, I don't know. I'd imagine somebody like Dr. John might be like that. Somebody that's been, you know. Absolutely. Had, Absolutely. Uh, that guy was so accessible and beautiful, man. Yeah. But maybe when you worked with a guy who worked on your session, he was like, hey, man, nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. What are we doing? And as soon as he got done, he was like, I'm off to something else, maybe because he's been abused, maybe because he's, you know, whatever the situation is. So, and I'm not saying Dr. Jones like that because I never had the honor to to work with him. But uh, the Beaver was was that kind of a guy. It was a bit Beaver was interested. So I mean, the, he was. Like, I mean, it's just so funny because it's some of the greasiest music I've ever heard in my yeah. life, and he, he could he could have cared less. I guess he just walked out. Yeah, you know. Again, well, I mean, what I'm saying by that is that my generation and younger, yeah. we have the ability to perseverate on what we create. 
I don't go back and listen to my interviews, but a lot of musicians will go back and over and over and over. They'll 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 just become obsessed with their own shit. And yet Beaver was like, I'm going to burn and I'm going to put the thing back in and I'm out. And this is the last, I want to finish set one, Mr. Galdo, because we got to do set two. Um, I want to finish with this, this question. And I'm not talking about projecting into the eighties and nineties and this century, but can you talk about fundamentally, we just got some George McRae records into uh, this nonprofit that I, that I work at. And I, I, I really need to ask you honestly, being a cat who craves Descarga, who is a bandstand drummer, why or how did you feel when we got to a point where it was about, you know, play straight beats, don't play yourself, bring in a drum machine, replace the human element of rhythm. That is killing us right now, man. Okay, that is why our society is fucked. And so yeah. all I'm asking is at that time, were you conflicted about it? Obviously, you wanted – just take me through that. Well, uh, short answer, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do okay, it. Okay, thank I, you. I there you go. There you go. Yeah. I, I would just say, yeah, I have a drum machine. I can program it, but it's not going to sound like that drum machine that sounds like shit that's got no life that makes me, <laughs> makes me depressed. I ain't going right. to do that, man. You know, I'm going to do – Rhythm's going to get you by Gloria Stefan or, you know, something that's got some sweat and dirt. Because that's my my two words are sweat and dirt. Everything's got to have that shit. If it's too perfect, I don't want any any part of it uh, unless it needs to be perfect to to achieve a certain magic. And I'm all about it. Craftwork, for example, or or Yellow Magic, magic Orchestra with Rishi. That kind of stuff, I'm all, I'm all with it. If it has to be that, I'm with it. But I am not. I mean, I used to hate it when, what was a bass player in New York that was really, really, really big? And then he became a, a producer. Uh, I mean, I'm talking human. He had that show on Midnight with, with uh, David Sanborn. Why, was, why, am I, why am I not, I am yeah, just I, not, I mean, I don't, I don't I, this doesn't register at all right now. Well, there, there was a. There, I'm thinking about Gordon Edwards, but that's not him. No, him. not no, no. Gordon Edwards no. sweating dirty. This guy. <laughs> this, this, guy, this, this is guy, a later guy. cab, man. Yeah, I don't know, yeah. man. I don't know. Guy, I think this guy might have played on some of Miles' stuff, but everything that he do, including some of Miles' shit, was like this stuff. It just, I, it's kryptonite, man. I can't hear this stuff. It's just so not grooving. It's so not right. Can you talk about then? Because uh, this is beautiful. With McRae, were you yeah. playing drums on McRae's stuff? I the first song I think I've ever was on the radio was a, a song with George and Gwen McRae. What was the name? But I'm uh, I oh damn I. <laughs> uh, we just got a bunch of George McRae in. I got a Lattimore record in. I'm like, and then Galdo comes on this on this on this satellite. I'm like, this is unbelievable. Man. But let me tell you about George and Gwen McRae. Go ahead. I really never got to meet him because by that time. There was a rhythm uh, track, you know, I, I forget who even produced it, to tell you the truth. Might have been um, Pee Wee uh, Clark, might have yeah. been the producer or not, but don't quote me on that, I don't remember. But, so I never really got to hang with those folks, you know? Um, I can't really much tell you about them, except great singing, great vibe. Interesting, interesting. So they, at that point, at that point, you were playing the vocals or you laid down the rhythm tracks and they sang over it? Yeah, they played the rhythm track. We played the rhythm track, go home or hang out and play 
without exaggeration, 15 tracks, right? In, right. in a time. I mean, a producer would come in without exaggeration, they'd sit on the piano and they'd have these three super long fingers and they would just play the piano. That's the way they played, right? And so that's one dude that you had to relate to and adapt with for and do the job until you see that black dude bop his head going, yeah, we got it. <laughs> and he was like, no, there's no better feeling. You know what I'm saying? Dude, I am love, dude, you're making it so simple. Just there's ride no the bike feeling. every day. There's no better feeling than be invited to M&M Liquors to go cash your check, you know, and have, have a shot. Dude, please, do you have a picture of you outside M&M Liquors, man? This is too no. good to be true. No. No, I I don't. I wish I I wish I did. And you know what? I was back in Miami a couple three years ago or so, and I was doing something where it took me through Hialeah, and the place was still there, man, in the same spot. M and M Liquors. I should look it up to see if it's still there. I wouldn't be surprised if it's still there. I was totally so jazzed up that they were still there because it was just great. We didn't think of it. You know what I'm saying? Thursday, we go get our checks. We go down the street. We had cash in our pocket within minutes. And okay, what's the next song? You know, who who's next? Right. So. Um, all right, I'm just going to read these names off and I want you to just tell me who's still with us. Yes. Mike Lewis. He's with us and I, and I, I, I shouldn't say anything. Well, he's not sick that I know of. In fact, I just talked to Trevor Fletcher who's been running Criteria since he was a kid. Jeez. And I asked him about Mike, because we used to play poker all the time as well. And he said, yeah, Mike is good. He's pre prepping a, a record for somebody. And he always, 99% of times, is live guy, so it's great. So he's still with us, yes. Freddie Scott. Man, I wouldn't know. I think Freddie Scott went through the grind of, of live music. Freddie Scott used to play in this place <laughs> called The Castaways. I, I got I got the baptized. Oh here. no! Uh, oh no! No no! Check this out. So the castaways, the drummer, we were at the top, and the ceiling was hitting our head. But the club owner had this neurosis where the music can't stop. So I'd I'd come up right, and and Freddie would give me one stick, and I'd go behind him, and I and I you know kind of he'd kind of stand up and get the other stick, and boom, and the song, <laughs> the music would never stop. It was nuts. So, <laughs> I think a lot of those guys just got so beat up and so, um, you know, you can only imagine being a black person in the South in that era. Their life must have been hell. Uh, anytime I, I go through any small town in Florida, I, the first thing viscerally that comes to me, what would it like to be a black person here? Now, Miami was not part of the South. I'll grant you that. It was a yeah. metro metropolitan cosmopolitan city. But still, man, they lived in the ghetto. They, you know what I'm saying? I went to the. No, I'm going to read. I want to read off a couple more, a few yeah, more ahead, names here. Okay, yeah, here we go. Sorry. I'm just going to read them off, and then you can. I'm going to give you Ivan Olander, Bobby Radiloff, Ron Bogdan, Joe Mercia. Go All ahead, right. baby. Ron Bogdan. <laughs> Ron Bogdan, I think, was a bass player. It absolutely was. Who would come in with. A very elitist, elitist kind of a vibe. Well, you'd almost see the guy coming. Oh, he was an uppity cat, man. Oh yeah, my man. god, he was very uppity. And he had he had a friend, a drummer named Ned Burnt, who I think now is um, um, uh, uh, arranging, not arranging, uh, uh, what is that? Designing guitars or something. I just talked to him the other day because he hit me up about Bobby Caldwell's death. Just just like we're right, yeah, rest in peace, um, man. So that's Ron Bogdan. The next guy you said was after Ron. Uh, there was a guy, 
Ivan Olander. No. Uh, and Joe Mercia. Okay, Joe Mercia. Okay, so Joe Mercia, thank you. Joe Mercia was part of the rhythm section that was out of this planet. And Joe Mercia, there was a guy named Tubby Ziegler. Ziegler. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, dude. There was a Harold Cower guy who played bass. That trio for me was the Bernard Purdy, Chuck Rainey vibe here. They is anybody, played, is, is it, it, are any of those cats still around? I'll try to find out for you. Those guys. Please, dude, played, I, if you're going to tell me, because yeah. that was ultimately the goal of the show was to determine who was the wrecking crew of Miami. And you just said it. In my book, they played on Andy Gibbs stuff, not the Bee Gees, but Andy Gibbs stuff. Absolutely. That shit grooved so deep, man. Hard. You know? It was the kind of thing where, like, in between your notes, you were feeling it. You know, you're not. You're in the cracks, it. dude. You're in the cracks. I love and, it. Yeah, and that that to me, that rhythm section was the shit. I never hung around with them much. They were like, they they were Key West guys. They were like in the Keys, and they played in some bar down there. And it was like hard to get a hold of them. I think <laughs> at some at some point. At some point, they, they were they were you know wanted by the Gibb brothers because they they realized what they had, and they hung around a little bit at Criteria, working with some people. I, I think at some point, I know at some point, Jerry Wexler and and Army Erdogan were down there trying to get a rhythm section out of Miami so that they didn't have to bring in the Bernards and these guys from New York. Sure, sure. Uh, I was part of that. But Joey Murcia and 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 Toby Ziegler and uh, Earl Coward were also part of that, but it never clicked wow. any of us. Um, well, I, I just want to let you know, Mr. Brother Galdo, you took me to Never Everland today, and I cannot thank you enough for this. And I hope we can do set two real soon. Anytime, man. And I'll I'll try to find out if I, uh, all I'm saying is, dude, I I got to be honest, man, like. If you can hook me up, if if there are cat, I just want to get to this scene, man, because the closest I've gotten, Will Lee, Will bounced. I mean, Will went to New York, and then yeah. it was you know guys like Johnny Molo is a dear friend, the drummer, yeah, Mark Egan, you know Mark a lot of these Egan? jazzers. Yeah. Okay, like you know they're uh, Danny Gottlieb, Gil yeah. Goldstein. So like that's a whole other side of Jake Feinberg. But there was this studio scene, the Grease, the Galdo Grease, man. I need to get to those cats. Yeah. Um, Just think about it. Let me know when it comes into your head or whatever. Cliff, Cliff Carter's another guy I went to school with, of the Danny Gottlieb and the and the Mark Egan school. Which Cliff Carter, I would love to talk to Cliff, dude. Well, talk to Will because Will and, and Cliff Will, Will can get that. I'm just saying the cats, the cats that you, you know, any of those studio sharks. I don't care if they're the originals or not. I'd love to get talk to them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to see who the hell I can talk to about that. Steve Alemo, unfortunately, is doing very bad. He's got um, Parkinson's, and he's barely You know, it's funny, you funny because I just I, – I, earlier this year, Roy Blumenfeld from the Blues Project hooked me up with Al Cooper, and yes. I recently asked Al, could you hook me up with Steve Alemo, and he just was so rude and angry, and I guess it's because, you know, Steve's not doing so good. No, but I know of a guy – and I wish I could remember his name. He also, he's doing something with Snoop Dogg about TK Records. And he already did one uh, about T TK Records. And he's very thorough. He used to have a, a Cuban label called Aina Ma. Mm. 
Uh, I'm trying to think of, of let me see if I can find them real quick. Hey man, no, let's let's do set two next week, man. We'll do another one. Okay. I'll All right, think about it, man. And bless you, brother, man. You just ride that bike, man. <laughs> you got that right. I walk right. the beach every day. I'm simple dude. Yeah, call Will Lee. Call Will Lee, man. Send 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 your love to Will Lee, dude. Legendary Will cat. Yes, he is on so many levels. Yeah. Much love, Mr. Galdo. I'll talk to you real soon. Likewise, Mr. Feinberg. Take care, sir. You too, boss. Bye, buddy. Bye.